Good morning. How are you? Hey, if you uh, would turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of halfway into the Bible and take a slight right. We've been in uh, this series in Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at chapter 7 today. And um, if you have that blue pew Bible in front of you, it's page 556 is where we're going to look. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. And uh, I just, I want to do just two disclaimers uh, before we start. One is, um, this is a hard text to preach in some ways. And so I, I know that there are some in this room who have had people they love dearly who have died recently or have people they know and love who are on death's door. And I'm not unaware of that piece as we do this. And so there's a sensitivity there that we just have to say. The second one is, is this is a tough passage. I would just say that personally. And not everything in the Bible is as clear as every other thing in the Bible. And so we trust the word of God this morning um, as we go forward into this text. Okay. where we've been is that the author of Ecclesiastes has been talking for six chapters about how confusing it is in some ways to live in the world that God has made and controls. And there have been some rays of hope in the first six chapters, but the author of Ecclesiastes has said there is a lot of stuff that is confusing about what it is to live in the world under the sun. And Before we read the text, I want to give you just, I want to give us a feel of to get into this text. And that is the author's about to turn to give some advice. Okay. Before we read it, I I want to take you back to my sophomore year of college for a second. My second semester of sophomore year, I was taking organic two in physics, med school bound, baby. And, um, the end of that semester, there was an organics final, a day off and a physics final. And my physics two professor was a man by the name of Dr. Werner Turnow, top of the field in physics in 1980, whatever. And he was a good man. Like he was a good professor. He loved physics. You could tell he, I'm going to say it. He made physics fun. Okay. But you could tell it's not just that he loved physics. He loved students learning physics. He was a pleasure. He really had the good of his students in mind. And at the end of the semester, Dr. Turnow, and just if it's not near the German, if it comes out more Russian, just forgive me, right? At the end of the semester, before the exam, on the last day, Dr. Turnow looks at the class and says, the exam is going to be very, very difficult. It would be wise for you to study. Organics exam, day off, physics exam. At 8 o'clock the morning after my organics exam, a girl maybe showed up at my door who I was interested in as a sophomore guy in college with a picnic basket and knocked on the door and said, let's play. And I got back to my desk at 11.45 that night. That's the reaction we're looking for. And as I sat down to study, Dr. Turnow's words came back to me very quickly. 
It would be better for you if you studied. And what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to do as he turns into chapter 7 is to say that there is a good God who has your best interests in mind. And it would be good for you to heed the wisdom that he's putting out. That's the feel of what is coming in chapter 7, okay? It would be wise for us to listen to the wisdom of God through the preacher this morning. That's what he's after, okay? So let's read the first 14 verses of chapter 7 with that feel. Because what you've heard in the first six verses is life is hard. And not everything is easy to answer. And sometimes justice goes unnoticed and righteousness gets punished. And evil goes free. And sometimes the the young and the healthy and the kind die early. And sometimes the mean-spirited and the ugly live a long life. And it's hard to understand what to do. And he looks and says, it would be good for you to listen to the wisdom of God. So let's hear it. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient is spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. But consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The grass withers. And the flowers actually do fade. But the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word in our time. Father, make us to be those who heed your wisdom. Because you do love us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The righteous seem to go unpunished. The kind seem to go unrewarded. People die and get sick in a moment's notice and we never saw it. 
There's so many things we can't see. We can't see the beginning from the end. We can't even see around the bend of tomorrow. How is a person supposed to live in this world before God? And the question that the writer of Ecclesiastes is asking is, how will we live in response? If Ecclesiastes is proposing, and it is proposing, that all of this happens under the nose of God, who directs it and wills it and sees it all, and proposes that he is both good and gracious in the middle of it, how will we respond to life under the sun? How will we live in response to this God when it doesn't make sense to us all the time? And the author turns to give us this advice. And here it is. He says, it's better to live a life of wisdom than to live life as a fool. Wisdom is better than folly. It's better to have lived a life of engagement with God in the world that is under the sun than to live escapism. That's the heart of chapter 7. It's better to have lived a life of engagement with the God who really is in the world as it really is than to try to escape life. And he starts this thing by saying that the proof is in the pudding. Verse 1 is so strange. He says a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death is better than the day of birth. I think this is what he's getting at. That ointment, that perfume can cover a scent of something that really smells and, and is bad. But that a good name, a good name is actually something that is born out over your life. What you've been known as from your life. Because your name represents it, right? The Burger Boys. What are they? We know what the Burger Boys were by the way the Burger Boys lived. So when he says that the day of death is better than the day of birth, he's not actually saying that death is better than life. That's not his point. It goes back to this first thing, that the good name, that the day, that the day of your death is the thing that actually is going to reveal how you've lived. When you're born, it's all potential out in front of you. But the day you die, people kind of know what kind of person you were. So that the day of death is actually the thing that reveals whether or not you've lived this life of wisdom. Whether or not you've listened to Dr. Turnout, right? Whether or not you've listened to the wisdom of the Bible. And, and look, I, I will say this. Some of you are sitting here this morning and this is where you are in life. You just had a baby born. Or your kid just got married. Or you just had your first grandchild. And, and it is honestly okay to say that not every piece of scripture hits every person the same way all the time. Because you might actually be in a season where it is just joy. Thank God for that. Okay? There is some freedom in this. But the author here drills down and says that wisdom looks like this. That pondering death is better than pretending it's not true. Reflecting on the reality of your own mortality is actually a way of life of wisdom than trying to escape the reality of where you're headed. That to listen to Dr. Turnall and be like, it would be wise for you to hear it is to say, right? That it's better to sit a while in the mourner's place than to run to the next party. That the heart of the wise is actually in the heart of mourning. And that the heart of the fool is just looking for the next joke or the next laugh or the next drink or the next person to keep talking so they don't have to actually reflect about the life that they really live. 
The reality of your death is actually supposed to teach you a decent message about how to live. And look, it's not trying to say that what we're supposed to do in life is just sit around and think about death all the time, right? It's not the caricature you see on TV of like, Christians, they're such killjoys, they have no fun. Ugh, those boring, morbid, no, that's not the point. Ecclesiastes 3 has already said that to us, right? There is a time for laughter. There's a time for great parties. There's a time for feasting. There's a time for joy. And there's a time for weeping and a time for mourning. And it is wise for you in light of the way the world works to actually ponder every now and then the reality of your mortality. And the fool closes his ears off and sticks his fingers in his ears and goes, la, 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 I'm not listening. And you know, there are a million ways There are a million versions of that, right? There are a million versions of escaping, pondering our mortality. There's the party animal. There's the person who is unwilling to stop and reflect, right? You can just go on being busy, accomplishing and doing and being and moving and shaking and coordinating and networking so that you never actually have to slow down to face the fact of where you are. You can be the busy suburban mother who does it all, who's the homeroom mom and on the PTA and nothing wrong with all of those things, right? But there is a version of life where we can go and just be absolutely busy so that we don't have to reflect on the fact that we're mortal. The good dad who's at work at six and doesn't come home till seven, is committed to his hobbies, plays a lot of golf, coaches his kids. And it can actually be a foil for not stopping and listening to what the author is saying. There's a Christian version of this as well, you know. The people who use, God uses all things for good in such a manner that it's a club, a foil to actually avoid the sadness and reality of life. I know that sounds harsh. I need to be careful. But there's a way in which we can actually take the virtues that we like about Christianity, mission and service and good things to actually keep ourselves from reflecting upon the fact that he seems to say that wisdom is pondering our death. And it's built in the fabric of our society, right? Death is the last taboo. We say things like it's just natural or it's the circle of life. There is nothing more unnatural than the moment when the soul of a human being is torn from the body in death. Nothing. There is no more convincing argument for you and me this morning to heed the word of God than the way God describes the reality of life and the sadness of what death is. And the danger is, is that everyone is trying to shield us from it. When my stepfather passed away about 11 years ago, it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. He had throat cancer. And I, I don't need to be too graphic, but he bled. And there was a DNR, right? Don't resuscitate. But the hospital is legally bound to kind of revive him every time. And when Doc finally died, my family and I are standing around his body. And the nurse, the Lord bless her, so kind, doing her job. 
But her phrase was so telling. In this hurried, kind, professional manner, she's like, take a moment and then we'll take care of things. What will you take care of? I sound mad at her. I'm not mad at her. What will you take care of? Why is it good to ponder death? Why is it good to go house in the morning? Why is it good to consider seriously your own death of irregularly? Because the writer says, right, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it a heart. This is the end. Why is it good for you and I to ponder the reality of our own death? This is part of God's apologetic. The clearest evidence that this God, that this is God's world and that it is the way he says it is. The clearest evidence in some ways that scripture is true and the Bible is trustworthy is because the way God describes the world really. You can't escape it. This is the way of all men. All people. And the wise people of the world will actually consider it. Rich, poor, white, black, High SAT, low SAT, socially capable, socially anxiety ridden. This is your end. Death is saying to you someday that the funeral that you are a part of will not be one that you're a visitor at. It will be your own. And the guy's trying to say that death has something to teach you. Death is supposed to teach us how to live. Now look, there is a way in which I think we could run to the resurrection. Which as Christians, that is an okay and good and right thing. I don't think it's actually what the author is trying to do. While it's true that as Christians we look forward to glory and our presence with Christ fully, right? While it is true that we can long to say with Paul that to die is actually gain, I don't think that's what the author is doing. I think he's trying to say that death has something to teach you, that your death has something to teach you about how you live now, not then. And at the risk of boring you and making you fall asleep, I'm going to read to you from this guy by the name of Livingston, who's written a good commentary. He says, it's important to be clear. The person who lives like this, who lives with a backward view, who starts with his own death as a main reality of their life and then comes back to life, says that on the contrary, it's not morbidity. What characterizes a person who lives like this is that they have depth. They have a depth of soul. They have a depth of character. But superficiality is the mark of the escapist who lives in denial. If you live in denial of death, what is there but to eat and drink and a party? Instead of being superficial, death invites you to be a person of depth. Only someone who knows how to weep will really know what it means to laugh. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. It's an invitation to be a person who realizes that living a good life means preparing to die a good death. And have you ever met people like this? They're actually fully alive, engaged with the world and with their family and the goodness of creation because they know that they have it all on loan. It's a gift. And that one day God will simply call time. But when he does, they are ready to go. Will you let death teach you the limitations of your life? 
Will you let it reshape your goals and your attitudes and the things you long for and work for and pray for and hope for the most? For if death is not your Lord and does not own you, and if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, then it surely doesn't. Then death actually has something good to teach you. And to go a little further, right? The writer just says, not just let death sink in for you, but let sadness affect you. That sadness affecting you is actually better than looking past it for pleasure all the time. Sorrow in verse three is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is actually made glad. And look, this is not being an Eeyore, right? The character trait of Eeyore is actually the opposite of this. Eeyore's What they do is, is they look for the sad side of life all the time so that they actually don't have to face the sadness. They beat it to the punch. I'm sure it's going to rain today. I'm sure it's going to be terrible. So that they actually don't have to face the sadness. But in not facing the sadness, they actually don't experience any joy. I struggle with that. Wisdom says, let sadness be sad. Because sadness has a way of crystallizing what's important. Sadness over brokenness can sharpen actually the sight of good. I have a Christian counselor friend in Mississippi who says that the two holiest emotions in life are sadness and gratitude. You want to look like the most of what God is like? Sadness and gratitude are the things. Sadness brings us a thankful perspective of the things that are good in life. The gift of God, right, that Ryan has been talking about, this ability to eat and to drink and to give thanks for what we have in this life, comes into sharp focus when we actually enter into the sadness. And that is the beauty of the incarnation. It's the wisdom of God in sending Jesus in human flesh to take on our form so that he would redeem even our sadness. He knows what you are like. He has suffered and been through every moment of sadness And the temptations and the sorrows. And he has engaged those things that he might bring into sharper focus by the hope of redemption. The joy of the things of this life. And the guy goes from verses 1 through 6. And we're going to skim over this nextness. Wisdom says... Look at your own mortality rather than pretending. Let sadness actually sink in because it brings into focus some of the reality. And when you look at verses 8 through 12, and we're going to skim it, and I mean skim it. He looks and says that, hey, it would be good for you to seek this wisdom that if death is actually really true in the end of us all and escaping it by not paying any attention to it or escaping it by trying to shut sadness out is not good, then there is another bunch of ways that we escape it that he says, here's some wisdom for you. And I I just got to skim it, right? Absolutely skim it. That a life of wisdom that is actually engaging God and not escaping is actually saying, hey, rather than just throw my hands up and not do anything in verse 7, I'm actually going to try to finish some stuff. And patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. That a life of wisdom actually says, if death is really true and this is God's world, but he's really gracious And I just, verse 9 is a killer to me. And my children laughed at me all weekend while we talked about this sermon. Because be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. And I'm a fool and I need the wisdom of God to come and take root. But But he looks and he says, look, nostalgia, verse 10. 
Nostalgia is actually a way of escapism. To say that the former days are better, it's not from wisdom that you ask this because nostalgia actually doesn't take stock of the sadness of the former days because there aren't any things as the good old days. They don't exist. Death reigned then as it does now. Evil happened then as it did now. Murder and oppression, all that stuff was then as it is. There's no good old days. And what he says in verse 12 is this. Life does go better when wisdom is involved. Right? Wisdom is this good inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. My friend said money doesn't make it all better, but it helps. Right? That's what the psalmist is saying. Money helps life. Wisdom actually helps life. Wisdom's a good thing. You should lean into it. Dr. Turnout wasn't lying. It would be good for you. To study. But. This is the beauty of it. Wisdom is a good thing. Believers should lean into the wisdom of life in these ways. But. At the end of this chapter. He comes back to say. That wisdom has its limits. Don't be fooled into some theological snobbery that thinks because we have some wisdom, we have it all figured out. Where he goes in the end of this section is, but consider the work of God. In the end, who can make straight what God has made crooked? He's back to this refrain. Wisdom is good. You should live the life of wisdom in light of the way God says life works. He's for our good, but it has its living. Even with good wisdom in the end, you have to trust not your wisdom. You have to trust God. Because what God makes crooked around the end, you can't see around the bend, even with wisdom. And I think what he's doing is, is he's inviting us here again to trust. To trust the God who provides wisdom, but not trust the system of wisdom itself. Right? That even though wisdom is a good thing for you and I, wisdom has its limits. We're to trust not wisdom. We're to trust the personification of wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ. We're to trust a person. And I, I, it, it is, I'll be gentle in this. I think you've seen this, right? Kind of, have you seen folks at times, I'll be, I'll be really gentle. I'll be really gentle. Have you seen folks who kind of have it all figured out theologically? They have the airtight theological system. They've got all the right answers. They can quote all the right authors. They've read all the right things. That's not a bad thing. But when actually tragedy really strikes them, they are unhinged. Wisdom is really good. But you can't trust your system. It's actually an invitation to trust a person, an invitation to trust the God of the Bible, to trust Christ in all of his wisdom, who is the wisdom of God. And look, for some of you, and I'll land this plane, for some of you, trusting God in the confusion and the hardship and the reality of death is easier. For some of you, it comes naturally to entrust your God in life when it gets difficult. 
And I texted Karen and I, I told her this was hard. And I don't, I'm not going to put Ken up as a hero. I'm sure there were dark nights of his soul. But externally, Ken seemed to be one of those guys who publicly looked and said, God is good all the way to his last breath. For those of you who where it is easier to trust God in the goodness of those moments. Good night. Thank you. That's such a sweet grace from God. But for some of you and me included, honestly, it is a little harder because the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes are the thing that sometimes kind of gain our heart. That in the confusion and in the difficulty and in the hardship of life and in the things that don't seem to make sense, it is harder for us to say Yay and amen. And I would actually propose to you that the beauty of Ecclesiastes is that the struggle of that means that it might actually be the presence of faith for us to struggle with God in those moments, not the absence of it. It might actually be that as you and I are seeking to cling on to God and argue with him in those moments, that that is actually a grace and an honest picture of what faith is. And it would actually make sense to me if you're here this morning and you're thinking, actually, it's the reality of death and the hardship that makes me not want to trust him. I would say I do understand that. But I would actually propose to you that the honesty of the scriptures that's portrayed in Ecclesiastes is actually the very reason at times that makes faith in God reasonable. It's a friend of mine who's a seminary professor at Covenant Seminary who actually said that he was converted when he read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because for some people, when they come to Jesus, the thing that convinced them was the answers. That they actually found a ground of faith in the answers that they got. And for him, what he said was the truthfulness of the fact That Ecclesiastes allowed me ambiguity. That not all of life's answers are questioned. Or questions are answered. That I actually can't create some system that is airtight. That gets it all neat and tied up in a bow. It's actually the thing that pushed me to believe that God was worth trusting. There are more angry answers you can give to that. There are more prideful answers. But I will tell you this. You are going to trust something or someone with this reality. You're going to trust something or someone with the reality of your mortality and your death and the confusing nature of that. You're going to trust something or someone or some system with the hard questions of life. And I would encourage you to trust the kind of God, as the writer says, who knows the beginning from the end. Who knows what is around the corner and has your good in mind, even though you can't see around the corner. Who has entered into the fray of the confusion and the sorrow and the sadness. By taking on the human form and suffering like you and I do. That he might bring his wisdom to bear and redeem that very wisdom by his life in yours. It seems we have a reason to trust a God who himself has entered into the sorrow and the shame of death in the person of Jesus Christ. And Dr. Turnow, I think, would stand here and say, in the middle of all the things that life has to offer, 
it would be good for you and I to not trust our wisdom, but to trust the God of wisdom who is personified in the kindness and goodness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are good and we believe you and we ask you to help us in our unbelief. Teach us, O Lord, to live a life of wisdom resting in the goodness and mercy of Christ and being encouraged that though we do not know the end from the beginning, you do and you intend our good through Christ. Amen.